I just want to share with you a few things that we as a community, whether we're, it's our first time or whether you're a long-standing member here at Graceland, uh, we had quite a week last week. We had 17 people say, you know what, I want to join this community in membership. We had several people baptized. One was spontaneous right after our second gathering last week. We had several people say yes to Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and we had new people, young and old alike, all in one week. And I just want to celebrate with you this morning. That is just such great news uh, to share. And, you know, I told our staff this last week that, you know, we're thankful to see that happen in just one week when so many churches don't see that happen an entire year. And we're just grateful to God for what he continues to do. Will you celebrate with me? Isn't that great? Well, we continue the series we're in called Pursued. If you want to turn to Hosea chapter 3, we will be there. As you just read earlier, you can turn there in the Bible you brought or a smartphone. There's a Bible in front of you. I say it every week. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home. Put your name on it. We'd love for you to look at it. If you don't know where Hosea is, turn to the table of contents at the beginning of your Bible, and you can find Hosea regarding the page number. As you turn there, I want to ask you a question. What do you think that God thinks when he thinks about you? What do you think that God thinks when he thinks about you? If you were to ask me that question, my answer would probably vary depending upon the day. There's a lot of days where I just grow disheartened by the way that I act, by the way that I express myself. And there's several different layers. The first level is more of a trivial level. I wish that I worked out seven days a week like some people do, like some of you do. I, I wish that I could turn a, a remodel project into what you're able to do. I, I wish that I was able to do uh, things on an athletic field or a golf course like some of you do, but unfortunately I do not. But then my disheartenment goes a little bit lower. It goes into my relationships. For instance, I have two wonderful little girls. I wish so many days that I was more patient. I wish so many days that I was more uh, full of fun. I wish so many days that I, I was a better father. Just the other day, I was at a basketball game, and I'm sitting there next to some friends, and my five-year-old daughter is sitting next to me, and I brought a coloring book and, and a red pen to, for her to draw with. Well, she's writing, and she just kind of keeps writing right onto my pants. And they were a nice pair of pants, and they're the ones that I sometimes uh, wear up on stage, and so I try to keep them as nice as I can. And I looked down after talking to my friend, and there's red all over my pants, and I, re I was regretful about what I said next. But then I have a beautiful wife that I'm blessed with, and, and I wish that I was a better, better husband. I wish I was a better friend. I wish I was a better lead pastor so many days. It disheartens me. But then on an even deeper level, there's this level of disheartenment when it comes to my sin in my life. I, I live a life of sin so often. I'm more selfish than selfless. I can get so excited about a, the things of God and, and ramp people up, and then the next day I find myself wandering off on some island. See, if, if I were to share with you what God thinks when he thinks about me, some days I would just say, most days I would just say, he doesn't think that great about me. And I think that you think the same. On your good days, when the sun is out and you've been good to the kids or you've been good to the friends and you've been a great worker or you feel good, your health is good, everything's, you hold, held the door for people and you pay for the person behind you and everything is just revved up on all cylinders, you think God loves you. 
But then on the bad days, maybe you slip back into that addiction, or you let your children have it, or you let your wife have it, or you're a bad friend, you're a bad boyfriend, bad girlfriend, bad coworker, or whatever the case is. You're just an angry person. You cut people off in traffic. You would say that day God looks on you differently. But here's the good news, not the fake news, okay, but the good news that God loves you. He does. And we've been learning about the love of God that pursues us every single week in this series. Hosea chapter 1 was about the relational love of God. Hosea chapter 2 was about the teaching love and the tender love of God. Hosea chapter 3, we come to today that God extends his hand to each and every one of us, and he extends his redeeming love to us, his awesome redeeming love to us. Lou Johnson played in the 1965 World Series, and they would won, they would win the World Series that year, and he would get a World Series ring. A few years later, Lou would slip into drug addiction, and because of that, he would then go on to have to sell his World Series ring to pay for his addiction. Many years later, the owner of the Dodgers would find his ring on eBay, and he would buy his ring back for several thousand dollars, and he would reconstruct a a ring ceremony for Lou. And Lou, having been given that ring back on his finger again, said this, that it was like a piece of me came home, a piece of me was restored. This is redemption, and it's awesome. A theological definition of the word redemption would be this, that Jesus Christ would come, would lay his life down, would give us freedom from our sin and set us free. A different way to say that theological definition would be this, that Jesus paid a debt that he didn't owe because I racked up a debt that I couldn't pay. You see, as we read chapter 3 of Hosea, what leaps off the page and into our hearts is the redemptive love of God. For each and every single one of us. So let's look, let's look at it together. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to me, Go, this is God speaking to Hosea, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. The first thing that we see about the redeeming love of God is that it demonstrates, though it's undeserved. That it demonstrates itself, even though it's certainly undeserved. See, it's different than our love. See, our love is earned. You do something for Ray, and love you, Ray loves you back. You're kind to Ray, and Ray will extend his love to you. It's probably certainly the case at some point in your life. Reminds me of the story of a husband and wife. They're in the car, and they're going down the freeway, and they had just one of those blowout fights. And he's yelling at her, and she's yelling at him, and a police officer happens to pull them over. And he walks up to the car, and the husband rolls down the, the window, and says, sir, do you know that you were going over 100 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone? Do you know that's against the law, sir? And the, and the husband says, oh, no, you got it all wrong, sir. Pardon me, but I never drive above the speed limit. I always drive the speed limit. In fact, your radar must be broken. So he turns to his wife and he says, isn't that right, honey? Don't I? I never speed, do I? And she goes, oh, yeah, he was speeding. <laughs> Write him a citation. He was guilty. He speeds all the time. He should go to jail. So the police officer begins to write the citation, and he goes, well, sir, actually, I'm going to have to write you up also because you're not wearing your safety belt. 
The guy goes, oh, officer, you don't understand. I always wear my safety belt. I just took it off right as you walked up. Isn't that right, honey? Isn't it right that I always, and she says, oh, he never wears a safety belt. There's, there's cobwebs coming off of that safety belt because he never wears it. And that the husband's had it as the officer's writing up more of the citation. He just lays into his wife right there in front of the police officer. For a whole minute, he just goes on and on and on. And finally, he finishes. And the police officer looks at the, the wife and says, does he always treat you like that? And she says, oh, no, only when he's drunk. This is our love. See, our love is earned. Our love is conditional. But the redeeming love of God is demonstrated even though it's undeserved. And as we look at verse 1, we see this over and over and over again. We look at the first phrase I want to kind of highlight and bring out is this, this phrase, raisin cakes. And I, I ask the question, why the granola bar mentioned right here in verse 1? Like, why cliff bars, right? But we realize something. This is 3,000 years ago. This is a culture that we don't really understand. Raisin cakes were the aphrodisiac of their culture. Now, before you run out and get some, okay, to spruce out your, your love life, I wanted to teach you that these raisin cakes that they bought, they thought they would increase the romance so they could have more children so they could then put those children on the altar of Baal. This, this was shameful activity. And this was a shameful condition of a shameful heart for Israel. And we've said this all along, that the marriage of Hosea to a woman named Gomer, who's a prostitute, was the demonstration of God's love to his people who were prostituting themselves to anyone but God. As God pursued them, they pursued others. And it's a vivid picture and story of my life. As God loves me, pursues me, I pursue all other things. But then God tells Hosea, I want you to go, show your love. And we're not sure how long. His time has passed since chapter 2, but we do know this, that she has been loving other people. There has been extramarital affair after extramarital affair, and the romance has gone, but Hosea goes after her, he goes to romance her, and he finds her at the lowest of low in a person's life. She has now become a sex slave. This is a picture of what sin can do. There's an old preacher saying, it says this, that sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay. It'll cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. And it's cost her everything. She can't get past her past. She's bound by the sin of her life. And you may be sitting there today going, you know what, hold up, hold up, hold up. I'm not a prostitute. I'm not a sex slave here today, Ray. And that may be the case, but as one preacher said it like this, we all got the same disease. You see, if we go down the path long enough, we will find ourselves at the very bottom, just like Gomer finds herself. The great theologian J.I. Packer, he says it this way, Total depravity means not that every point man is as bad as he could be, but that at no point he is as good as he should be. See, this is a depraved person in Gomer, and my friends, we're all depraved. We all have the disease. 
On this day in 1546, Martin Luther would, would say his last few words. His last few words recorded were, we are beggars. This is the case. And what he indicated was, we are beggars of the grace of God. God says to Hosea, go again. So Hosea goes, and he loves the same woman again and again and again. And it's demonstrating, even though that her actions are not deserved in any capacity. Another way to say this would be this, grace. Everybody say that word with me. Grace. It means unmerited favor. Grace plus anything is anything but grace. If you want to spot grace, it's always undeserved. If you deserve it, it's not grace. Grace is always given to people who don't deserve it. It's unfair. That's grace. I was uh, in college, and I took this one class that was a very difficult class for me to navigate through. And nobody ever got an A in this class because the professor was brilliant and his scholastic levels and his expectations were off the charts. His, his midterm was coming around and a group of friends and I approached him and said, Dr. Miller, would you give us the key to acing your midterm? And he kind of chuckled and he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this study guide. And if you fill in every part of the study guide, you can bring it with you and you have a chance. So we're like, all right, game on. Two weeks we studied. We filled out every part of this. The study guide was over 30-something pages long. All right, it was packed. I spent two all-nighters getting ready. And we come in, and I will never forget the scene. He's got music blasting. He's got the lights turned kind of low. And his feet are up on the desk, and he's got a steaming hot plate of brownies. And on the screen it says, put your study test on the desk and go have a seat. And when everyone gets there, he announces to the class, regardless of whether they studied or they didn't study, everyone got an A+. And then he went on to tell us how we were bound to secrecy and we weren't allowed to share it, but he said, I wanted to give you a modern-day version of what grace is really about. He said, some of you in this class didn't study at all, and some of you think you earn an A. Regardless, you would, none of you would have gotten an A, but I wanted to give you an A+, because that's grace. Reminds me of the, the movie Saving Private Ryan. Anybody seen that movie, Saving Private Ryan? Saving Private Ryan is a phenomenal movie about the, the invasion of Normandy. And they storm the beaches. And there's this group that the movie really tells a story about that are army named, uh, rangers. And they were given this assignment to go find this Private Ryan whose brothers had been all killed in the war. And so their job is to get Ryan and bring him home so that his mom wouldn't lose every single son she had. And so they go and they find Private Ryan actually facing formidable odds before the Allied forces can get there. And they try to get him out and Ryan won't go and Ryan's going to stay the course. And so they all stay there with Ryan to fight and hopefully get him out. And every single one of them would give their lives during that part of the war. And Tom Hanks plays kind of the main character. And as he breathes his last, he grabs Private Ryan, he brings him close, and he says this phrase, earn this. I want you to watch this scene real quick. They're tank busters, sir. P-51s. Angels on our shoulders. What, sir? this. 
It's a moving scene. But there was a sergeant who was an army ranger who watched that movie. And even though the fact that he loved the movie, he said an army ranger would never say that to somebody. And here's why. Because for the last 200 years, the army rangers have had one motto, and the motto is sua sponte. And sua sponte means, I chose this. It means of their one accord. It means, you know what, I chose to do it, you never earn this. What this means is this, that we are all beggars of grace. That we have, are undeserving of the grace and mercy of God and His redemptive love for us. This is God's redemptive love. This is the same love that Gomer experiences. This is the same love that we experience. Then the uh, second thing that we see here of God's redeeming love, it just jumps off the page in verse 2, is that redeeming love, it picks up the tab. Look at it with me in verse 2. It begins, So I bought her. So I bought her. I was at a restaurant the other day, and I was getting ready to pay for the tab. I called the waiter over, and he said, oh, no, sir, someone picked up the tab for you. And I kind of joked, and I said, I should have gotten dessert <laughs> and a gift card. <laughs> but we're talking a much greater tab than just lunch here. But Hosea, he picks up the tab on Gomer's behalf. I can't imagine the scene, can you? The embarrassment of a small town talking about a husband whose wife is running around on him now as a sex slave and he's going and he's going to pick up her tab. And we know certainly in this culture that she probably would have been in some local area of downtown area of this community. And there she's probably chained to a pillar and she's naked. And she's naked because they, the, the people that are selling her want all the people, men or women alike, who are going to bid on her to see what they're going to enjoy when they buy her. And there's a sign that close by that says there's a sale coming up and maybe there's the time and everyone kind of knows when to gather to buy her. And how much would she go for? We don't know, but then we read the text here, right? And it says, for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. So can you imagine the scene that Hosea, he goes home and he sees the kids and he gathers all that he has up and he puts it in a bag. And it's 15 shekels. It's all he's got to his name. And he's like, I've got to have more. I've got to take everything i got. And so he gets some barley, and he puts it in another bag, and he takes it to the auction with him. He says to his children, hey, I'm going to get mom. Would you pray for me? And he kisses them both, and he, he sets out on his journey, hoping that that's going to be enough, and that's going to be quite enough. And redemption is this word in the Greek. It means to buy back in a form, in a consumeristic manner. It's the Greek word, apolytrosis. And certainly Gomer needs to be bought back, right? Because she's a slave. She's a mediator to come in and to purchase her, to give her freedom. And in the same way, we must need a mediator. We need a purchaser to redeem our sin. The Apostle Peter said this, you know that from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, you're ransomed, not by perishable things like silver or gold, but by precious blood like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb named Christ. That Jesus ransomed us. A theological term would be that we were justified. We were made right. And we have right standing before him. Can you imagine the scene? He's got the bag by him. 
and everyone else has got their bag. Have you ever been to an auction before? I was at a, an auction the other day for a, ga- a gala, and I, I think it's great to hear those auctioneers go real fast. I've always wanted to talk that fast. Can I get it? Can I get it? You know? Can you imagine in that scene that the auctioneer begins standing next to the naked woman and everyone is gathered below and he says, let's start at 10. And he, can I get a 10? Can I get a 10? One guy raises his hand and then another person raises it. Can I get 11? Can I get a 12? Can I get a 13? Can I get 14? And they stop at 14. Can I, go, uh, can I get a 14 once? Going twice. And then Hosea raises his hand. He says, 15 shekels and some barley. The auctioneer says, going once for 15 shekels and some barley. Going twice, S-O-L-D. Sold to the man in the back. See, what do you think that God thinks when he thinks about you? I'll tell you. I heard it one time and described it this way. Picture you're standing up on that pillar, and you're the one in shackles. Enslaved by your own sin, the the mess-ups, your depravity, and the, sh- and the grip of evil is excited because the gavel is about to come down and you will experience eternity with the evil one. And right before the gavel comes down, a hand from the back of the crowd raises. And there the, the hand comes up and the mouth opens and says, my life or theirs. And the man, the auctioneer goes... Sold to the man in the back for the highest price ever given for any person in the entire world. Jesus Christ. See, if you could summarize all of the other religions in the world, you name them, put them all in one column. And I'd above it, I would just say, you know how you summarize them all? With two letters, D-O, do. You got to earn it. You got to do it. I was talking to a woman one day who was a was a converted Muslim, and she was sharing about what Islam is all about. It's the same thing. It's about earning. It's about doing. And you want to know how you can summarize Christianity? I'll tell you how you can summarize Christianity. D-O-N-E. Done. Done by the blood of Jesus Christ. That auction scene could not be any clearer to me and to you. And here at Graceland, we are just a bunch of sinners needing a hospital. And Jesus Christ comes and he begins to heal us from the inside out. And you may be saying today, look, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know if people really knew me. Let me tell you something. The price was high enough for Jesus to come. And that price, my friend, was completely paid. I don't care what you've done. He overpaid for you. He overpaid for you. Consider the thief on the cross. He lived a shameful life, and Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise when the thief realized that he needed the grace and the mercy of God. So I'm telling you right now, I want to encourage you that it's one thing to know about the redeeming love of God. It's another thing to receive it. Would you receive it? Would you come to Jesus and say, You know what? I need your redemptive love, God, because he's extending it to you. Then the third point that I want to share with you that jumps off the page to me is that redeeming love, it moves us to action. It moves us to action. Look in verse 3 with me and following. It says, Then I told her, You are to live with me many days, 
You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessing in the last days. The key there in verses 4 and 5 is the fact that Israel one day will return. The idea is that one day there will be this prayer that will go out towards seeking God once again. And that is in maybe in many days to come, even during this understanding of the millennial reign. And that moves into a whole other area of theology we can get into later. But there in verse 3, you, you see this scene where that Hosea pulls out the blanket and he, he wraps her in a blanket. And he takes her home and he covers her shame. And he says, now it's time for you and me. It's just time for you and me, friend. Would you be intimate with me and I'll be intimate with you? There will be no others. And it's that kind of redeeming love that gives our passion and focuses it back on one person and one person alone, and that's the person demonstrating the redemptive love. It just initiates our love back, doesn't it? Our freedom is given, and then we give up our freedom to the one that has given us it. I was doing a funeral a few weeks ago, and I was just blessed to be able to do it, celebrate an incredible man. And part of his story was he lived a very selfish life. I mean, to be honest with you, he really enjoyed himself. But then the redemptive and redeeming love of God moved his heart to action. And there in his days to come, he would dedicate himself to serving this church. He would dedicate himself and his generosity to this church. He would begin to serve his community. In fact, he served his community to the point that on his dying days that there wasn't very many strangers at that hospital because of all the times he had visited that hospital for others that his grandchildren celebrated his life, that his great-grandchildren will be understanding a legacy for years and years to come, all because of the redeeming love that was moving him. Now, I want to ask you this question today. If you're anything like me, so many days I feel like that Christianity is like a program. It's like a set of do's and don'ts. It's like a set of dots and crossing the T's. Have you ever felt that way? Like, oh, I got to be good. Because what God thinks when he thinks about me is only how I perform. If you ever struggled with this, if you ever felt like it was a program, or if you ever felt like, in, in essence, that your life was kind of like a self-improvement, self-help, I want you to read these scriptures with me. I just want to let it marinate into your heart. And I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to read these out, Mark. Chapter 15, verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and, and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews, again and again. They struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. And John 19 says, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and there they crucified him. Ephesians 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Philippians 2 verse 8 says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Romans 8 33 says, It is God who justified. Romans 4 verses 7 and 8 says, Blessed are those who are lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who 
against whom the Lord will not count as sin. Second Corinthians says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8.34, Who then can say we are guilty? It was Christ, Jesus, who died. He was raised from the dead. He is on the right side of God, praying to him for us. Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees and pray to Father. I pray that Christ may live in your hearts by faith. I pray that you will be filled with love. I pray that you will be able to understand how wide and long and how high and how deep his love is. I pray that you will know the love of Christ. His love goes beyond anything we can understand. I pray that you will be filled with God himself. Ephesians 3 continues, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. And amen. Now I just want you to pause. And I want to ask you, what went through your mind? Honestly. I'll give you a couple of scenarios. Maybe you thought, yada, 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 I've heard it before. Or, not again, I already feel guilty enough. Or, that reminds me, I need to do some more good stuff. Or, I'm different than most people, my life has been really hard, I don't know if this is for me. Or, sorry, I'm too busy, just text me the summary later. See, I'm afraid that we've gotten this amnesia to redemption. We've blacked out on the gospel. Peter would remind us of this. Obviously, there was a a problem with the same thing in the early church. He would say this, but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Another way to say it is this, that if we forget our redemption and reconciliation, we'll struggle with sanctification. Sanctification meaning we'll look and smell and act and be like Jesus. See, redeeming love, it moves us to action. And the reason why it moves us to action is because all of a sudden his redemptive love begins to change our perspective. All of a sudden our perspective changes from these things are important to he's important. And all these things like fast cars and incredible looking clothes and the things that we can acquire and the relationships that we can even have, we know that eventually they're going to perish, but there's one thing that's not going to perish, and that's God. And there's this eternity to look forward to. And, and all of a sudden, we begin to put more and more and more and more of our stock in that as opposed to the stock here on earth. And as those things begin to change, we begin to understand, and it wants us to move us into an action to be a part of the redemptive part and history of God for all of creation. And we begin to move more and more and more into this redemptive plan. And all of a sudden, folks, all of a sudden, it's not about dotting the I's and crossing the T's. It's about getting involved in the redemptive work of God for all of creation, and we find ourselves moved to action. We, we find ourselves leaving our comfort and extending compassion. We find ourselves fighting resentment and bitterness towards people who have hurt us and extending forgiveness. We, we find ourselves in the middle, moved by his redemptive love to go beyond ourselves in so many different ways with our time, our talents, and treasure, like the friend that I just shared about and I did his funeral, where we begin to extend ourselves because of the redemptive love that we've received. And as those things begin to build in our life, our action proves the fact that God's redemptive plan moves us to a point like we've never seen before. And it burdens our heart for our neighbors. It burdens our heart for the next generation. It burdens our heart for the nation's. And we begin to weep. We begin to cry. You know that when your heart breaks for something that shouldn't, it isn't the way it should be, you know that God's redeeming love is moving you. God's heart breaks for your neighborhood. 
His heart breaks for the next generation. His heart breaks for the nations. That the people on the faraway continents of this planet, God's heart breaks for. But not only those nations, but this nation. Did you know that this nation is is an unchurched nation? Did you know that 80% of Hoosiers go to church nowhere on Sunday? The nations have come to us, friends. And our hearts can be burdened so that God's redeeming love can impact every single person locally. That's why I'm so convicted about our own backyard. That's why I'm convicted that in the coming weeks and months and years to come, I would like to see us be a church that launches multiple neighborhood campuses. That's why I would like to be a church that God's redeeming love pushes us and drives us until our last and dying days to not only reach here locally in Indiana to see it changed, but also other states in our country like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but also other places in the world like Indonesia and Africa and other places because of his redeeming love. And as I celebrated that man and I did his funeral, I thought to myself, I don't think that he was saying anymore, earn this, earn this, earn this. I think what he was saying was, I chose this because of what God did for me. Would you stand with me? Now, I just want you to spend a moment. I know you have a lot to do, and you want to be the Presbyterians to lunch. We got time, okay? In the quiet of this moment, I want to ask you this question. What will you do with the redeeming love of God? Will you receive it today? If you don't know him, would you receive it? If you don't know him right now in this place, would you receive his redemptive love? And I'll tell you how you can receive it today. You can get out of your seat and you can meet me here down front. You can meet some friends I'm going to have to my right and to my left who would love to pray with you, who would love to reach their hand out to you and, and, and share with you the redemptive love of Jesus Christ. And you, my friend, can begin to follow him and his redemptive love will change you and transform your life. If that's you today, I would love for you in these next few moments to step out of your seat and just come forward. But if you're a part of the family of faith today, maybe today it's that you need to come down to this altar because this redemptive love of God has escaped your vision for too long. And today there needs to be this renewal. Or perhaps today you would like to come down to the front to pray for those who desperately need this redemptive love. Or maybe it's you'd come down to this altar surrender to his redemptive love that God would use you in your neighborhoods. Or he's calling you to even step out and to go into full-time ministry or to use your business or your, use your calling and go to another city or go to another state or go to another nation because of what he wants to do through you and in you. But in this place, I just pray that you would surrender to the redemptive plan of God because of what he wants to do in your life. There's an opportunity where you can take communion to my right and to left and to celebrate what Jesus has done for you. Or if you just don't want to simply come to this altar and ask God for prayer, you can do that as well.
There's an old song that I'd like for us to sing, and it's a song that I learned when I was young. And it says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a, you know it, right? Some of you? Yeah. He washed as white as snow.